Good morning. Good morning and welcome to our Good Friday service here in this fellowship, in this church. And it's a great joy to welcome everybody here on, uh, on this occasion. It's uh, wonderful to have these extra services during the course of the year, of course, for us as believers. Uh, every day is an Easter day for us because at the end of the day, um, the Lord Jesus Christ, risen and powerful in our lives, is, uh, is so important for us. But today is a special day as we remember all that he has done for us. Let's begin, if we may, by standing and singing our first hymn, uh, which is number 183 in the hymnals, which should be in the pews uh, beside in front of you, 183, beneath the cross of Jesus. So just uh, to simply make mention of the fact that uh, if you're a visitor and you're not familiar uh, with our fellowship, then uh, we'd love you to complete one of our visitor cards. They look like this and they're at the back. Um, Just fill one in and if you'd like to receive our bulletin on a regular basis, then you can uh, just put your email address on there. There's also a place for prayer requests and let's pop them in the offertory boxes which are at the uh, ends of the pews here as, uh, as you go out of the fellowship. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then Jesus asked this question, do you believe this? Very simple. Do you believe this? Do you believe what has just been said? Let's come to the Lord in prayer. First of all, I will just say that we are meeting on Sunday 
uh, for our services at the barn in the morning at 11 o'clock, and that's uh, on the 59 South, and if you ask someone afterwards, they'll tell you how to find it directly. And then on Sunday evening, we're meeting here in the church at 6.30, so we look forward to that. In the morning, we're considering the feasts that are recorded for us in Leviticus 23, and the relationship very clearly with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the evening is a gospel service, very simple, not too long, very much to the point. And we're just going to ask the question, who tore the curtain in the temple and why? So bring any friends, neighbors, family to come and hear the gospel on Sunday evening. Uh, for our uh, young people this week, Trailblazers, uh, six to 12-year-olds takes place on Wednesday, and that will be here in the church basement. And then uh, Wednesday evening for our uh, uh, teens and 20s, uh, we meet for jam at 7 p.m., which is in the Cornerstone. It's the old library next to shoppers. So let's come to the Lord in prayer. Our great and wonderful and merciful God, <clears throat> there was a time in our lives when we dreaded the thought of coming near to you. There was a time when guilt ravaged us and controlled us. Maybe we tried to bury it, we tried to hide it, but there were those times when suddenly we were confronted with it face to face. And suddenly we saw a holy God and we recognized that there was no way that we could ever have a relationship with him, even though we tried. There were times when we perhaps uh, worked very hard. Uh, we did everything that we could to make ourselves better. We tried to wash ourselves of our sin by avoiding the places that we should never have been the things that we should never have been doing, the things that we shouldn't have been watching or reading or being involved in. And we tried very, very hard. And God, we wanted you to be able to accept us as we were. But the guilt kept coming back. But now, as we have come to belief and trust, in your Son, our Savior, we are able to see that our sin has been dealt with. The trespass has been sorted. Yes, the very throne, which was once a place of dread for us, has now become a place of shelter. And it is to you that we flee. So, Lord, you know our lives. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, you know each one of us. You know the position that we're in. You know the things that occupy us. You know the state of our heart. You know whether we have recognized your hand at work in our lives or not. And we come before you now and we pray that for those of us who yet have to call upon you for salvation that we would hurry to do this, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would lead us, that that sense of guilt would continue in our hearts until we come before you and we confess our sin and we call out to you for salvation. Oh, bring us, we pray, now near to yourself. And our God, we bless you. We bless you for our redemption. For you have so loved us that you have given us your dear Son, he gave himself, his very life for us, that he might redeem us from all our sin and iniquity that separates us 
from you. Never can we sufficiently adore the free grace and the undying love. The wonders of Calvary never cease to be wonders to us. In fact, they grow more marvelous in our hearts and minds and souls as we think of him who has washed us of our sin through his own blood. Nor can we cease to <clears throat> praise the God of our, of our regeneration who has found us dead and has made us alive. We have been found in enmity toward God and yet God has reconciled us to himself, found loving the things of the world. But through the power of the resurrection, we have been lifted out of the world, out of the muck, out of the mire, out of the selfishness, out of the worldliness and have placed in the love and the divine relationship with you and the everlasting arms of God for all eternity. And so, Lord God, we cry out, Hosanna, save us now, we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask if uh, Julie would come, and uh, we have, uh, Julie's going to sing to us, and we're very grateful for that. Thank you.
Just as he died, willing to pay the price. Willing to pay the price. How beautiful. John, would you come and read the scriptures for us? Thank you. Thank you, Julie. Good morning, everybody. I'll be reading from Luke 23, verses 26 to 49. So if you can open your Bibles to that. It's Luke 23, verses 26 to 49. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene. He was on his way in from the country and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, for the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then... They will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, 
If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written a notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Do not, don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished just, justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and the darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last breath. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness the sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Amen. Thank you. Pete, I wonder if we can have our next uh, hymn. While Peter's uh, coming up, we're going to... He's going to play the organ for us, and we'll stand and sing number 175, Man of Sorrows, What a Name. So please, we'll stand together, number 175. <clears throat>
Thank you. Okay. And so uh, this morning is the day in the calendar which uh, is called Good Friday. Um, some people just consider it, it's a day off work. Uh, you don't have to do the things that you would normally do. It's a great time for family and this Easter period. This Easter is slightly unusual this year in that it is the first time for three or four decades that Easter and Passover and Ramadan have all fallen on the same weekend. And so there's many things that are going on in uh, Jerusalem at the moment. Um, there are police fighting battles to keep each of these groups apart. And uh, it certainly is not a time of peace in the world in which we live at the moment. Uh, Russia has lost its uh, flagship, <laughs> flagship, flagship in, the, uh, in the Black Sea. The Moscova was sunk by the Ukrainian uh, forces, and uh, that's upset some people there. So we know that we don't live in a world of peace. So this morning, what I'd like us to do very, very quickly, and it is a short message, is to try and think about Calvary, not from our perspective. Um, so often we can think of it looking from uh, perhaps the ground up toward the cross, although I understand that the Lord Jesus would not have been lifted up high, but would have been lifted just above the ground. Uh, so we can sometimes consider all that took place at Calvary from our perspective or how we would view it from our perspective. Uh, we, can, we can see that quite often. Sometimes we talk about uh, the different characters who were there and what they had seen. What did the centurion see? What did he feel when he saw what was taking place? But I want us this morning to try and consider what God saw. In other words, looking down, as it were, from heaven and seeing everything that's taking place there at Calvary. And sometimes we get the idea that God is sitting in some sort of uh, cloud-shaped armchair, and he's looking down and he's seeing what's going on. That's not what God is doing, but we do know that he is watching, he is in control, he is seeing what is taking place. And at that time, he was watching. Perhaps we've been to many Good Friday services. Uh, perhaps we've been to many Easter Sunday services. Perhaps uh, we have heard many messages. We've heard these sections of Scripture that John has read to us. Uh, we've heard about the cross being spoken of at this particular time. And I want to continue to do that this morning. But as I've said, to look at it from the perspective of what God saw, of how he saw things, of how he saw the cross, of how he saw the crucifixion. And if we can see how God saw the events of that first Good Friday, then maybe, just maybe, we will understand better what the cross means to us. Because there's no doubt that God wanted us to see the cross. And we just read some words from Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, it's been shown, it's been made visible apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. A very important, very powerful section of Scripture. But it tells us a great deal about God looking down at the time of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 25 really sums it up very, very clearly. It tells us a great deal about the events of that first Good Friday. It tells us, first and foremost, that God was in complete control. Nothing was taking place. None of the characters in what is being presented and what is being shown were acting by accident. There were no coincidences. God is in control of everything that has taken place. Yes, some of the things that are happening are terrible, and we don't sometimes want to talk about them. And in fact, the understanding in many churches today is we don't want to offend anybody by talking about the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But friends, it is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that has cleansed us, that cleans us, that keeps us clean before God, and that we are able to be washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus And so this verse tells us a great deal about the first Good Friday. It tells us that God is in control of everything that takes place. This verse reminds us that God was not just a spectator in the vastness of heaven. And he focuses in on this little planet, this little blue one that's floating in this huge cosmos that he has created. And he's just watching it with some sort of huge telescope to see what's happening. No, 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 no. That's not what is taking place here. But it reminds us that God is involved, that he's looking down at what has taken place. He was not just sat in those clouds, peering over the edge to see what men and women were doing. Now, in the New King James Version that I've read here, we have the words, God put forward. I think in the King James Version, it translates it and simply says, God set forth. And these don't give quite the emphasis of the meaning that I believe is being uh, presented here for us. And I quite like the New American Standard Version, the ANSB, and it puts it this way, and it says, whom God displayed publicly. Because that's what the words are actually trying to convey here, to place in public view, to exhibit in a conspicuous situation. So if you're trying to sell something, you want people to see it. Now, that's not the best analogy to what we have here, but it helps us to understand that what God is saying in the Scriptures here in verse 25 is that God put forward. God has made visible. God wants there to be the public witness of what is taking place. So that's the first lesson that we learned this morning is that the crucifixion was to be seen. It was to be witnessed by people and it has been witnessed by thousands and millions of people throughout the last 2,000 years. And every year as we meet particularly, churches all over the world will again enable us to see very clearly what took place. 
Now we're beginning to see just how God saw the crucifixion, how God saw all that was happening at Calvary. It was his plan that all people would see the events that were taking place. Yes, as we've mentioned, some of them were terrible. They weren't easy to cope with. There was great suffering. We don't deny that. The scriptures explain it clearly. And we understand, and even the history books tell us, that this method of execution was dreadful. It's appalling to read. There are still some countries, uh, Saudi Arabia, for example, that will allow or have crucifixion to this day taking place. So it was terrible. There was great injustice in everything that took place. But God is looking down. God sees what is happening. He sees the weakness of a politician trying to save his reputation. And it's amazing how politicians spend so long trying to save their reputation. And yet he sees Pilate and he sees him trying so hard to keep his reputation intact. We see the utter evil, and God saw it, of those who claimed to know and uphold the law. The ones that people should have been able to look up to. The leaders, the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And he sees them, the shepherds of Israel. And he sees that they should know the law. And he sees that very quickly they reduce themselves to the status of murderers. Because that is what they've done. Jesus was not guilty of anything. He was perfect in every respect. And they knew it. And God the Father saw all of this. All of it. And he wanted us to see it as well. Why? Simply because the cross is at the heart of the gospel. We've spoken about this at church on Sunday mornings. Without the cross, without the crucifixion, without the resurrection of his son, then there is no salvation. Then we would have nothing to say. We would have nothing to preach. We would have nothing to tell people. Now, whilst salvation is free... It's not cheap. And that's something we have to understand very, very carefully and very clearly. Some people fail to understand the cost involved at Calvary. We picture a cross on a hill and all we say is, I believe in Jesus. That's it. And those words trip off our tongues so cheaply, so easily, so quickly. And we haven't understood anything as to what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. The fact that it shouldn't have been him on the cross, it should have been us. There are three words which help us to understand and express the price God paid for our salvation. And the first one is a harder one. We've spoken about it before, but it's the word propitiation. And as some of you know this morning the example that I will use, but we'll come on to that later because it is a good one. And I've discovered that, that Norwich Baptist Church, the majority of people understand propitiation in a way that most other churches don't because of it. But we'll come on to that in a minute. The first one is propitiation. The second one is redemption. And the third one is blood. We're going to change the order slightly on redemption and blood because it, I hope that uh, it will help us to see it more clearly. And I'm just going to talk very, very briefly about these three words. So sadly, it's a fact that many churches today do not like to talk about the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I was at a conference uh, for a group of Baptist churches that we used to belong to. And that was one of the points that was made. You've got to be careful about talking about salvation to people because it'll upset them. And I'm thinking to myself, hold on a moment. That's the last thing we should be worried about. What we want to do is to talk about salvation because it will bring joy into their hearts and into their lives. So we need to be careful. In human terms, the word propitiation means, if you look it up in the dictionary, it means appeasing someone who is angry. And you appease them usually by giving them something. So if your mother's angry with you, you can buy her a bunch of flowers and see if that will act in a propitiatory fashion to try and ease her anger. You may be old enough to realize that the chances of that happening are slim. On the 30th of September, 1939, Neville Chamberlain gave a great example of this. He was the Prime Minister of Great Britain, and he stood on the steps of a plane, having just returned from Nazi Germany, and he stated this. He said, I have returned from Germany with peace for our time. Now, what he actually meant by that statement is he just agreed to give most of Czechoslovakia, another country in Central Europe, to the Nazis. That was what he really meant to say. And he waved this piece of paper... And, and, and that's the point he was trying to make. But the appeasement that he had, been, that he had brought was to give a large part uh, of, uh, of Czechoslovakia away. And within a few months, World War II began and millions of people were about to die. But you see, this is not what the Bible means when it talks about propitiation. Propitiation in the Bible means the satisfying of God's holy law. It means the meeting of its just demands, the law's just demands, so that God can freely forgive those who come to Christ. Propitiation, and I want to say this as reverently as possible, brings about a change in God's attitude. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. But it brings about a change in God's attitude. Should we be talking like this? I believe so. And this change is that he moves from being at enmity with us to being for us. So that's the change that we see in the attitude of God through propitiation. It is through the working of propitiation that we are restored into fellowship and favor with God. You see, it is that change of God's attitude towards us that enables us to be saved, that enables us to have salvation. When talking about salvation, it is vital that we know what we are being saved from. Now, many people in the world have no concept of this. If you are saved from certain defeat in war, then you and your country experience salvation. If you survive a life-threatening illness or something that physically affects you, then you experience salvation from that situation. If the house plant, and I use this example from our own home, if the house plant that you have, which is showing signs of like withering and dying because it's not been watered, and you water it and you treat it well, and it suddenly shows a state of robust health, then the plant is saved. And we need a little bit of this in our own home with our pot plants. Oh, I can't say pot plants, sorry. Our house plants. (laughs) Welcome to Canada. (laughs) 
In short, any experience of deliverance from a clear and present danger can be spoken of in terms of salvation. I'm saved from this situation. I'm saved. But when we talk about salvation biblically, we have to be careful to state what it is which we are ultimately saved from. And Paul puts it very clearly in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 when he says this, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. Now we begin to understand what this is about. You see, ultimately, Jesus dies to save us from the wrath of God. This is what propitiation means. And it was Jesus and his death that brought about the change in God's attitude so that he moves from being at enmity with us to being for us. So here's the example that we use sometimes. Back in England, in Somerset, is, uh, is a very big museum of things that fly. And they have the first prototype of Concorde there. And if you remember Concorde, it's going back a while now, but it had this massive long nose cone on the front of it. And uh, I was looking around the exhibition on one occasion, and there was a little sign, and, it, and I was surprised because it said at the top, Propicitor. You see, the nose cone of a supersonic aircraft is called the propicitor. And the word, it's the same root that we have here. So what does the nose cone of an aircraft do? I'm sure there's some engineers who could tell me straight away. But I can tell you, when something's flying at supersonic speed, the air becomes thick. And suddenly, you discover that you have to have something to protect the rest of the aircraft. And so the propicitor is the thing at the front that slices through the atmosphere, which has become thick because the plane is flying at two or three times the speed of sound. And it gets hot. So one of the properties of the propicitor is that not only does it cut through, but it protects the aircraft from the heat that is being generated. And friends, I need you to understand that that's the picture that we have here. The Lord Jesus Christ is our propitiator. He protects us from the heat of God's wrath. He keeps us safe. Because in Jesus, as our propitiation, we are kept safe from the wrath to come. And so when you want to think about this word and understand what it means, then that is a great way of being able to do it. And we praise God for this. But what did it cost for this propitiation to happen? Well, it's the second word that we look at. It's the word blood. Blood tells us that Jesus died. You know, some of us have a problem with blood, particularly our own blood. And uh, we don't want to get too involved in that. But here, the word tells us a great deal. It tells us that Jesus died, but it also tells us what the price was. Jesus had to die on the cross in order to satisfy the law and justify, make right lost sinners, you and I. And the best illustration for this truth is, of course, the Jewish Day of Atonement, which is described in Leviticus chapter 16, where two goats were presented at the altar, and one of them was chosen for a sacrifice, and the goat was slain. And its blood taken into the Holy of Holies, and the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat, which was the golden cover of the Ark of the Covenant. And this sprinkled blood covered the two tablets of the law inside the ark. The shed blood meant temporarily that the righteous demand of a holy God had been met. 
It's also very interesting to note that it is the same word, propitiation, that is used in Hebrews 9 verse 5 to describe the mercy seat in the tabernacle. The word propitiation is only used twice in the entire New Testament. Romans 3.25 that we've read together, talking about the work of Christ on the cross, and then Hebrews 9 verse 5 describing the mercy seat in the Old Testament. And it's important that we now understand the link between the mercy seat in the Old Testament and Jesus Christ, the propitiation in both cases. It's a beautiful scripture to be able to link and to see together. The picture of the mercy seat is found in Exodus 25 and is none other than a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. In a manner of speaking, the mercy seat concealed the people of God from the ever-condemning judgment of the law. As the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat, the point conveyed by this imagery is that it is only through the offering of blood that the condemnation of the law could be taken away and violations of God's law covered. The priest then put his hands on the other goat, on the head, and he confessed the sin, his sin and the sins of the nation. And then they shooed it out into the wilderness to take the sin away. So we have here the two beautiful pictures of what has taken place at Calvary. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Now that's the God that we've got. In Jesus, he's dealt with it. The thing that causes us all the problems, our sin is taken away as far as as it is possible. In the Old Testament period, the blood of the animals could never take sin away. It could only cover it until the time when Jesus would come and purchase final salvation. And God had passed over the sins that were passed, Romans 3.25, a literal translation, if you like, knowing that his son would come and finish the work. Because of his death and resurrection, there would be redemption, a purchasing of the sinner and setting him or her free. <clears throat> Now, truthfully, we know that redemption, we know what redemption means, don't we? Um, has anybody ever been to uh, a posh theater or to maybe the opera or something like that, where you go and you have to dress up all smartly? And then when you, when you walk in, there's a place where you can put your coat, okay? And you, and you pass it over the counter, and the person behind the counter gives you a ticket. And if you keep that ticket safe during the course of the performance or whatever it is that you've been to, you can go back and redeem your coat because the ticket will allow you to get your coat back. I've never lost the ticket, but I've always wondered what the procedure was if you were to do that. That's what redemption's all about. I want you to listen to this little story and we're nearly done. Tom carried his new boat to the edge of the river. He'd made it himself, he'd painted it, bright colors, and he'd spent a long time carving it, putting a little mast on it, cut a bit of fabric out, and made a sail. He was really proud of the little boat that he had made. And he had a long piece of string, and he just sat on the bank of the river. The sun was shining. It was a beautiful day, and he just enjoyed himself admiring his little boat floating on the water. And then suddenly a strong current from upstream comes down and it catches his boat and the hook that he'd tied the piece of string to broke off. 
And his pride and joy, this little boat is just seen sailing off down in the current. He runs along the bank, trying to keep up with it, but the boat races ahead of him and disappears downstream. He runs, he tries to find it, but the boat has gone. And finally, when it's too dark to look any longer, he sadly goes home. A few days later, on the way to school, he spots his boat in the window of a store. And he's excited, and he rushes in, and he speaks to the shop owner, the store owner, and he says, that's my boat. And the store owner looks at him and says, it was brought here. If you want it, it will cost you one dollar. Okay? Tom dashes home, gets his piggy bank out. <clears throat> he counts four quarters, one dollar. And he runs back to the store. And he rushes in and he says to the store owner, Here's my money. Exactly one dollar. And the store owner gives the boat to him. And he cradles it. And he says this. Now you're mine twice. He says, I made you. And now I've bought you. You're mine twice. It's a simple story, but it explains all that God has done for us. When we come to faith in his son and our savior. You see, God created you, whether you understand that or not. But sin came into the world and separated you and me from him and his love. Our allegiance was no longer toward God, but was turned to the world and to the sinfulness of this world. We became objects of wrath to a holy God, the scriptures tell us. But then God, in his great love and mercy, gave his son to pay the price. And to satisfy the law that had been broken. You see, Jesus is our redeemer. Jesus redeems all who come to faith in him and place their faith and their belief in the Savior. He becomes our propitiation. He takes the heat of God's judgment and he shed his blood for us. And this Good Friday sees, we see the cross as God sees it because he wanted us to see it. This is how we know that he loves us. And so it's left for us to repent of our sin, to call to the Lord Jesus for our salvation, to be washed in his blood, his blood that was shed for us, because he owns us twice. He made us, and now he's redeemed us. Amen. John, let's... Uh, bring our service to a close this morning uh, with uh, number 196 in our uh, in our hymn books
Let's stand together. So the hymn simply reminds us that there is this fountain which is filled with blood. Yeah, hard words to to understand sometimes. But we need to be washed in that flood. I can't tell you how it all happens. It's a miracle. 
but it does. That we can be washed in the crimson blood of Jesus and come out whiter than snow. And I'm so grateful for the mercy of God. Our gracious and loving Father, we just thank you again for the perspective that we have looked down from the cross. And you wanted this to be seen throughout all generations because it is the central pillar of our salvation. There was no secrets, nothing was done in private. It was visible. The details we have clearly in the scriptures, the historic records that we have as well, our calendar, 2022, is based on this event. And every day we wake up and see the date, it reminds us of the thing that shook the world. And so I pray that our lives would be shaken and that we would finally have the truth and the reality of the risen Lord Jesus understood in our hearts and lives, that we would recognize our sin and our separatedness from God, that we would recognize that in ourselves we just can't do it. Nobody else can do it for us. It is only through faith, trust, and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, repenting of our sin, turning to him, and being washed in the blood. So, Lord, go with us, we pray, over this Easter period, that we would enjoy time with our family and friends, and that we would also take time to read these scriptures again, that we would join together on Easter Sunday, morning and evening, as again we recognize what you have done for us. And on Easter Sunday morning, as we partake in Lord's Supper again, we pray that this would help us to understand so clearly what has been wrought for us by our Redeemer, who created us and then saved us. He paid for us. So we belong to him twice. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.